Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Vaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Ted Wendell, who is the Senior Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and Planning at the Arizona campus of A.T. Still University of Health Sciences. Dr. Wendell's career in medical education stretches back to the 1970s when he began teaching pharmacology at Wake Forest University, and it includes several leadership roles at several colleges of osteopathic medicine. Dr. Wendell is known for developing innovative approaches to educating healthcare professionals, and he also launched the first successful online master's degree in nursing. On a personal note, I've gotten to know Dr. Wendell as well as Dr. Craig Phelps, who's the president of A.T. Still University, when we had a leadership retreat for osmosis at their campus in Mesa, Arizona, and they're among the nicest and uh, most innovative healthcare educators we've met. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, We've been friends now for a couple of years. We've talked about this sort of an opportunity, so I'm glad we could make it happen. So, Ted, one thing that's always impressed me about you and AT Still University is how interdisciplinary you all are. You have programs in PA, dentistry, medicine, audiology, among others. And I'm just curious, how have you become so interdisciplinary? And you personally, as an educator, how have you kind of sculpted your pathway in medical education to include all those disciplines? That's a great question, Shiv. It didn't happen as an accident. It it had happened from really probably two themes that that we had going on. One actually comes from Craig Phelps, Dr. Phelps, uh, and he was a team physician for the Phoenix Suns for 27 years. And, you know, as we started a campus in Mesa, Arizona, this idea of teamwork and the power of teams really was, was part of our thinking when we started. And then as we developed uh, a campus here outside of Mesa, you know, we had to really share space and bring people together and working together, which naturally got us thinking about teamwork. And then I'd I'd also point to our mission. And our mission is, is one where we focus on the needs of underserved communities and particularly community health centers. And for a couple of decades, they focused on on team approach to, to healthcare. So it didn't make sense to do it any other way, really. Right. And I was actually going to ask you about that because um, I remember hearing when I first visited the campus a couple of years ago about how important it is to place your graduates in rural and underserved communities. And then this past November, when we visited, uh, we learned about the efforts to recruit future caregivers and clinicians from those communities themselves. Do you mind talking a bit more about that and how, how you all have implemented that? Yeah, really, it's a 128-year-old story. This is A.T. Stills in, in Kirksville, Missouri, and the evolution of the first school of osteopathic medicine. And A.T. Still and, and that, that school really focused on rural health care and, and the needs of rural communities in, in the Midwest. And most medical schools after the Flexner Report were in big cities. And the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine focused on rural communities. And as we started in Mesa, we wanted to pick up on that theme. And fortunately, we were joined by uh, Dr. Gary Cloud, who was involved very actively with community health centers. And, And it just seemed logical that as we evolved over a period of a few years that we focus on 
those needs, the community health centers care for what, 27 million people now, probably more. And the, the workforce needs are dramatic. We did you know, a, a study and you know, they could actually employ almost every PA and physician that, that, that graduates right now. So it seemed like a, a relevant mission. It seemed like one that other people weren't focusing on. So it seemed like a natural niche for us. You know, it just came from a little bit of insight and planning. And, and fortunately for us, it puts us in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So speaking of that, um, do you mind giving the audience a bit of a sense of the scale that AT still has reached in terms of how many campuses you have, the new programs you're developing, and also just how many graduates you have? Because I was really impressed with, uh, with those numbers when you first started speaking with me about that. Boy, I, I struggle a little with how many graduates now... We've got 128 year history, so it's sort of hard to keep up with those numbers. Uh, we've got really two campuses, according to the Higher Learning Commission. We also have two locations, one in St. Louis with uh, the Missouri School of Dentistry and Oral Health. And then we're, we're starting another location in California, Santa Maria, California, where we're putting together a, a PA program. And then uh, the medical school and the dental school work intimately with community health centers around the nation. And I, I'd point to uh, the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona because uh, those students come to Mesa for one year of their medical education. And then they go as uh, small cohorts of about 10 students to 14 different community health centers around the country. So anywhere from the North Shore of Oahu to Brooklyn, New York. So we've got students all over the United States. They've become, at this point, we've been pretty successful at placing those students. Our graduates seem to go back to the community health centers. Well over half of them go back into primary care, I think the number is about 62% of our students go back to primary care. Many of them go back to community health centers. There's a bit of a gap now. And I, I, you know, they go to community health centers, they get educated, they're embedded in community health centers. We're really working on starting residency programs that, that complement those community health centers. Been a bit of a struggle. It's hard to start a residency program now, but uh, we're working on it. Our students seem to go get a, a residency and come back. So Dr. Phelps has numbers that are, that are staggering in terms of how many patient care encounters our graduates have every year, but it, you know, it's millions of people that, that, that are cared for. I remember he was telling me too about his own mother who, um, who was treated by a primary care physician who happened to be one of his former students, one of your former students at AT Still University. So. Yeah. Kind of cool because I know a lot of the universities that we work with and speak with, they train people who then stay in that city or that state or or go to the major metropolis areas. But it's cool to know that you can go to most even rural community health centers and probably meet someone who's a graduate of your programs. It's really kind of fun for me because, you know, as I traveled around the country, it was seldom possible for me to go someplace where there wasn't a graduate or an alumnus. I know that happens to most people who've been in education for a while, but, you know, we've touched the lives of thousands of 
alumni over a period of time. They are former students and colleagues now. And I, I've been lucky enough. I work with Craig Phelps, who was my student 35 or more years ago. You know, that's pretty cool. He's been my friend for, for 35 years. We worked together for, for a long period of time. And we've got all these relationships around the nation and it's gratifying, but there's also the other dimension and, and they're in places where they're needed and they're becoming leaders in those communities. And that's, that's really you know, fun to see, especially now during this time. So speaking of these times, that's actually my next question about kind of how COVID has changed everything. So just backing up before I ask the question, the reason we call this podcast Raise the Line is, um, as you're very familiar with and you've dedicated your career to, we want to improve and increase healthcare workforce capacity. And that's a, a two-sided equation. One is to provide more care in these rural areas and in general, but the second is to help provide employment opportunities to people who are in jobs that will get automated away or in the case of COVID uh, are just lost. And so I would love to hear more about, you know, how COVID has changed your outlook on AT Still's mission and also in the short term, how you all have adapted to it, given that campuses have closed. Well, that's about a 10 hour discussion, Jim. Uh, but I'm responsible for university planning. And as you know, strangely enough, we are finishing one strategic plan this year. We've launched a process that was supposed to yield an, our new strategic plan. And, you know, somebody threw a hand grenade into the middle of the, the planning process here. And we've really had to start from scratch. So we've been asking some of those questions. I'm not sure I've got all the answers right now. We, we're dealing with an unknown in a lot of ways. Is there going to be a vaccine? Is there going to be a second occurrence here? And now we're facing some civil unrest and really don't know where that's going either. We'd want to believe it's not going to, you know, keep on going, but there's a lot that we don't know about the future. The country's invested a lot of money in getting us through this. What does that mean, you know, as we play out the next three or five years? So the things that we've discovered are, you know, we see some challenges ahead in clinical education. And we've gone through a period now of four months where people have been working pretty hard to accommodate for the new reality. And we're concerned that there's gonna be a burnout. You know, at some point in the future, people are just gonna need some time to recover from this. And that suggests there might be opportunities for PAs, nurse practitioners, that you know, those new graduates to fill those those spots. I think more about the the new skills that I see that have come to the forefront, particularly telemedicine. I took a course. I, I figured I'd go back and, and learn online. So I took a course in April from uh, Wake Forest School of Law on telemedicine, the legal aspects of telemedicine. And I really learned a lot about where telemedicine has been and where it can go. And I think it's, um, you know, careers around telemedicine, not just the clinical careers, but supporting it, being administrators so that you do all the legal things, 
being the interface between telemedicine and the electronic medical record, that's a really open area. I think that offers a lot of potential. Then the other place is mental health. And, you know, as we went into this, I think we had challenges around mental health. I, I, for me, that was an important area that we had to address. Uh, I think we're gonna come out of this with an even greater demand for that. And I think we have to develop a greater workforce that focuses on mental health, substance abuse. I, I lump those things together, but I think that's gonna demand our attention and I could go on for hours about why, but that, you know, I hope I've come close to your, your question. Yeah, and I'm certainly, I mean, you've touched upon a couple of the areas that seem to have been accelerated by COVID telehealth, as well as exacerbated by COVID, like the opioid epidemic and other substance abuse disorders. What are some specific things that uh, you and your team at AT still are doing to help your students throughout this? I mean, again, with campus closures, with clinical facilities maybe being more restrictive because of transmission worries. How have you all adjusted at AT Still to this? I don't think we're much different than everybody else. I think we're in a little, we were in a little bit better place when this started because we were able to quickly shift online. And we had certainly the technology resources. We had a faculty that it was at least somewhat familiar with, with doing online education. So we shifted almost everything to online. And we relied on that up until actually probably three weeks ago, two weeks ago. We made the decision to stay online for most of the quote didactic, I, not a word I use a lot. I don't like that word, but most of the online uh, didactic is online. We are now opening the campus for hands-on type activities. So think of dental education. Dental education is, is students really learning to do essentially surgical skills. I mean, it, it's not something that, that easily translates into online education. So we, our students are coming back. We uh, think in terms of cohorts now and not classes. So we get, you know, we bring cohorts of students back at certain times during the day. So that's where we are now. I think that's where we're going to be for the next foreseeable future until something changes. I think we also, we, we've got a teaching and learning center, and they've really done a great job at helping our faculty understand that online education doesn't mean setting up a Zoom and lecturing for an hour. Uh, it isn't doing the same thing you would have done in a classroom on Zoom. That, that's not good education. So we, we've started our faculty thinking about what is good online education and how do you accomplish that and how do you support students and chat clients are important. I think uh, thinking in terms of small groups and interacting with small groups rather than one huge Zoom connection, that's where we're going, I think. Yeah, I know one thing for the audience who may not know you as well as I have gotten to know you is that I've always, again, been impressed how it starts with individuals uh, like, like yourself at AD Still who are autodidacts and you enroll in things like, as you mentioned, the Wake Forest Law course, and you understand what's good education, what isn't online, and how that translates into actual programs you implement. 
like I've been to the facilities and, and seen how you've innovated there already. Uh, you mentioned like that one EHR Go company as well, where yeah. you understand that one need for these workforce development, it's, it's a lot more than just medical knowledge, it's actual practice. And so giving them the opportunity to try implementing, um, like using EHR as an example, so that when they hit the community health centers or the hospitals, they can be uh, productive members of the workforce right away. And it was really important to us when we started the medical school. Now we went to the community health centers and we, you know, we talked to them and they talked to us about, okay, we get students here, but it takes us a lot of time to get them oriented. Some of our PA graduates, not just our PA graduates, but when a PA gets to an environment, it took them a long time to get oriented. We asked why, and there were, there were two main reasons. One is PAs were very broadly trained. But the fact is that 80% of the business was revolved around diabetes, heart disease, depression. You know, that was the core of the business. And it took students a while to understand that all the acute things that they learned about in school helped them understand the breadth of medicine, but not the business of community health centers. The other part of that was the electronic medical record. And that, that's a challenge for everybody, but our students hit, and this is a while back, they, they hit community health centers and we probably could have done a better job at making them understand how an electronic medical record works and how to use it. So, you know, we've really focused on that as we plan a new program. Telemedicine is gonna be part of the future, how you interact with patients and telemedicine is obviously part of the future. It was interesting going back to online education. It was challenging for me to sit there as a student because I sat there and listened to somebody lecture for you know hours on end and, and watching. It's even worse to watch somebody give you an hour lecture online. It was painful at times. I learned a lot, no doubt, but it was really painful to do. One of the main reasons why we even started osmosis as medical students ourselves was a lot of these one hour synchronous lectures could be turned into five to 10 minute more engaging scripted videos. You know, we've, we've talked about that is, you know, if you look at how people learn, they don't learn in, in 50 minute blocks, especially at two o'clock in the afternoon after they've sat through, you know, six of these, they, you know, they learn in 12 minute blocks and, and you, you know, this much better than I do, but um, that's the way we have to get the people to think over time. 100%. And so I, I know we're coming up in time. So I did have just two more questions for you. The first is, you know, over your few decade career as an educator, you've uh, taught thousands, if not tens of thousands of students. What type of advice would you give to someone considering a career in healthcare right now, um, given all that's going on in society and with the pandemic? You know, that's, that's a great question. And I, I've got a, an answer that that's worked for me. And I'll go back to when I worked in Kirksville, Missouri, and in the anatomy lab on the ground floor, on the wall was words from Louis Pasteur, and it's chance favors the prepared mind. I don't know what it's going to be like in five years, and I think if I were giving somebody the advice, it's this chance favors the prepared mind. Learn as much as you can, and then take advantage of the opportunities 
when they occur. I, I think about uh, in in my life the the times that that's happened, and I, I you know I I can point to them very directly. How did I get into this? And I, I you know we we talked about this before, but I was in graduate school back in in the seventies. And they taught me a lot about gas chromatography and, and the physiology of a rat. And at one point back in the early 70s, it dawned on me that somebody was going to expect me to teach. And I knew nothing about teaching. And I went to my advisor and I said, you know, I probably should learn something about teaching. He said, well, I, you know, I don't know what to do, but you know, we just got a, a, a message from the people down the street and they're doing something called a, a physician assistant program. I don't know anything about it, but why don't you go talk to them? And for me, that was, it was life-changing. Uh, I met a group of people who thought about education differently. I got involved in a, the start of a profession that, you know, over several decades, well, I feel old now, but uh, over several de decades is, you know, has been a very rewarding experience for me. So chance favors the prepared mind. I love that quote. And another quote I like that's related to that is uh, Jefferson, who said, I'm a firm believer in luck. And I find that the harder I work, the more of it I have. Yeah, I love that one, too. The, the other one, only tangentially related is, I, you know, the poet laureate of our age is Jimmy Buffett. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of people. Some of them were good and some of them were bad. And I've learned a lot from both of their styles. So they're the things that I tell somebody. I'd tell my daughters if I could. And so the last question is just, are there any other kind of things that you want our audience to know, given that we're focused on, as I, as I said, raising the line and increasing healthcare workforce capacity? The immediate future is going to be very challenging. And I, I think people have a sense that we're going to get a vaccine or COVID's going to go away and we're going to just go back to where we were. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think there are some very, very significant challenges that we have to face, economic challenges, physical facilities challenges. You know, I, I can go on and on. So the expectation of the future has to be different. We're not going backwards and we have to rethink and that this moment is an inflection point. Uh, the other part of that is, you know, we can see those as problems, challenges. I, I prefer that word, but in every challenge, there's an opportunity. And there's an opportunity to think different, to do things different, maybe even to build on what we already know from the past we've talked a lot about competency-based education. And I, you know, I think there's an opportunity here to really explore that opportunity. I think there are more open minds out there right now because of what we've gone through. So staying flexible and recognizing that, you know, change is gonna happen and we've got to accommodate it. Wise word. So Ted, I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, you know, again, the partnership and friendship you've given us uh, over at Osmosis. And, and again, the work that you've done over the past few decades to launch professions, to launch innovative degree programs. It's just a real pleasure to be able to work with you. I love working with you guys. And you challenge me every day almost to think about things uh, a little different. And I, that's exciting for me. I value your friendship, the friendship of 
everybody in, in osmosis is a it's a great group of people and I, I i enjoy every minute we get to spend together well with that thanks again ted and i'm shivaglani thank you to our audience for checking out today's show and just one quick reminder to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.